Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to greet all of you. I want to welcome the folks joining us online. Thanks for being with us this morning. I love that last song we sang. I love it. You're the one who never leaves the one behind. I love that truth about God. Let's celebrate that about God this morning. Yeah. I'm not sure the last crowd was even awake all the way to the very end. I'm not sure anybody was even awake in the last service. So I'm glad to see some response from you. If you've got a Bible, I want you to grab it and go to the Gospel of Matthew and find the 20th chapter. Matthew chapter 20. We're continuing our verse-by-verse journey through this gospel called Let's Talk About Jesus. And as we do that this weekend, we're going to talk together about the great generosity of God. We're going to do that by looking at a story called The Parable of the Workers in the Vineyard. We're going to talk about the great generosity of God. And this is such a great story that we're just going to dive right in. So, I know you just sat down, but I'm going to have you stand again for the reading of the Scripture. If you're able, go ahead and stand for the reading of the Scripture. If you're not able, that's fine. You just stay right where you are. We're going to look at this parable. It starts in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 20, and it goes all the way down to verse 16. You follow along as I read. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. I'm going to pause right there for a moment. Everybody look up here at me. I think it's important for us to note that the text says from the beginning that these guys agreed to go and work the day for a denarius. A denarius was not a lot of money in Jesus' day, but it was a fair wage for a day's work. It was enough to feed your family. It was the same amount of money that a Roman soldier got paid for a day's work, and so it was very equitable and it was very familiar, all right? These guys were day laborers. They were at the bottom of the ladder on the socioeconomic ladder. They were at the very bottom. They were dependent every day because they didn't have consistent jobs. They were dependent every day on the opportunity that somebody would give them to work, and the pay was a denarius. Okay, let's pick it up in verse 3. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing, because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. I'm going to interrupt it again for just a moment. Here's what I want you to understand. It would be wrong to misinterpret the fact that these guys in the marketplace were just standing around doing nothing. It would be wrong to misinterpret that, to think that they were being idle or they were being lazy, because the truth of the matter is this. They were doing absolutely the only thing they could do to try to get a job that day. They were standing there hoping, because this was not an uncommon thing, hoping that some business owner or landowner would come back later in the day and hire them, maybe hire more workers than they hired in the morning or have discovered some point during the day that they needed workers and go and hire them. If they were lazy, they would have gone home after the morning rush of hires. They just would have gone home and done nothing. But they were there in hopes that they might get the opportunity to work. So it would be wrong to think that they were being lazy or idle. Okay, pick it up in verse 8 and we won't stop again. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, 
I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And then verse 16 says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. All right, that's it. Go ahead and be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. Let's talk about this parable for just a minute. With the exception of the ending which was unusual, this story reflects a common occurrence that you would see in first century Palestine in the days of Jesus. Just like we see in many agricultural regions around the world today, there were men who would gather in the marketplace every day hoping to be hired for a day of work. As I said just a moment ago, they were day laborers. And in Palestine, in Jesus' day, the average workday began at sunup and it ended at sundown. And so let's think of it like this. It began at basically 6 o'clock in the morning and it ended at 6 o'clock in the evening. And as I said, the typical pay for a day's work was a denarius, which again wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to feed your family. And so you can see how dependent these day laborers were on getting work so that they could work during the day and then have money to go home and buy food to feed their family. And if a man wasn't hired the first hour of the day, as I said, the day wasn't lost because he would oftentimes just stay there in the marketplace hoping that some kind of a business owner, hoping that some kind of a landowner like this man in the parable who owned a vineyard would return to the marketplace and hire more people throughout the day. And so the workers who really wanted to work would stay around. That means that when Jesus told this story about this landowner who kept hiring people throughout the day, it made sense to his hearers because they had seen this thing happen before over and over and over again. Maybe they'd even been a part of this before. And when Jesus said to the ones that were hired in the beginning of the day, I'll pay you a denarius, that was familiar to them. When he came back and he hired more workers and he said, go into my vineyard and work and I'll pay you uh, whatever is right, that made sense to them. All of this makes sense to them. He didn't promise those guys hired at the third hour and the sixth hour and the ninth hour and the eleventh hour that he would pay them a full day's wage. He just said, I'll pay you whatever is right. Where the story takes an odd turn, especially for the listeners, was at the end of the day when the landowner was ready to settle up with his workers. He told the foreman to begin with those who hired last, and as you saw in the story, he took those who were hired last. That means people who worked literally just an hour. If the workday began at 6 in the morning and it end, ended at 6 at night, that's 12 hours. Those who had been hired at the 11th hour would have been hired at 5 o'clock in the evening and would have only worked an hour. And when he paid them, he paid them a full day's pay. He paid them a denarius. Now, it goes without saying that those guys had to have been thrilled, right? Everyone say, right. Wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you be? They were thrilled, absolutely thrilled. And it goes without saying that when those who were hired first heard that the guys hired last were going to be paid a full day's wage, they just anticipated that they were going to be paid more, right? But when we got down to the workers who'd been hired at the beginning of the day, who'd worked for the full 12 hours, who'd borne the brunt of the labor and the heat of the sun, they were paid the same denarius, just like they had agreed to, just like the landowner had promised. But unlike the first group, they were not thrilled. They were not thrilled when this happened. And they basically say, wait, wait a minute. Why do they, the ones who only worked an hour, get the same amount of money as those of us who worked the entire day? And I love the way Jesus replies, beginning in verse 13, or at least through the story. But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? It's a pretty incredible story. Now, 
I'm just going to cut to the chase, and I'm going to tell you this morning what the overall meaning of the story is. You look like a pretty smart group of people. You probably figured it out on your own. I'm going to begin with what Jesus says first. He begins the story by saying, for the kingdom of heaven is like. We've talked about this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, on numerous occasions before, in particular because we've been studying through Matthew's gospel, and the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is found all throughout Matthew's gospel. Just in case you're curious, sometimes we read in the Bible the phrase, the kingdom of God, sometimes the kingdom of heaven. They mean the same thing. And when Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, this is what he means. The kingdom of heaven represents everywhere God rules and reigns. Think of it like this. The kingdom of heaven is everywhere God rules and reigns over the redeemed. So the kingdom of heaven is actually just another way to describe the reality of salvation. When, t- when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, he's saying salvation is like. That's what he's saying. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're here and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, surrendered your life in faith and trust in Jesus, then you are a part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, having said that, here's the central meaning, the big meaning of the parable. The meaning of the parable is that everyone who comes to God is accepted on the same level and given the same salvation regardless of who you are or when it was during your lifetime that you came. I'll say it one more time. You see it on the screen. Everyone who comes to God, everyone, everyone say everyone, everyone who comes to God is accepted on the same level and given the same salvation regardless of who you are or when it is during your lifetime that you came. When I was studying for this message this past week, I ran across the story of a preacher who was on his way to Sunday morning service, and he had his little boy in the car with him, and he was preaching on this very passage of Scripture, and so he began to discuss the parable of the workers in the vineyard with his son. And after a while, he asked his son, what do you think the parable means? And the little boy looked at his dad and said, that's easy, dad. It means everyone finishes the same. And he was absolutely correct. That's a simple overarching meaning of the parable. The parable of the workers in the vineyard means everyone finishes the same. It doesn't matter if you're Billy Graham or you're a lifelong criminal who has spent your entire life doing despicable, horrific, unthinkable things, but at the end of your life, you surrender in faith and trust to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where you are on that scale. Everyone finishes the same. And when you understand that, you understand why the very last thing that Jesus says in this parable is, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, having said all of that, there are so many lessons we can learn from this parable, so many practical things we can talk about this morning. In fact, when I was in my office this week and I was writing this sermon, I literally wrote down on a notepad 13 different things I think you can learn from that story. Yikes! 13 different things. But you can tell from your bulletin this morning that I got the good sense to just talk about two. We're just going to talk about two things because I think this is a parable. At the end of the day, more than anything else, I think this is a parable that should be celebrated. This is a parable that teaches us truths about God that should be celebrated. And so let's celebrate two things in particular. If you're someone who likes to take notes, write down next to number one this. Let's celebrate the seeking heart of God That's number one. Let's celebrate the seeking heart of God. One of the things I love the most about this story is the fact that this landowner, this man who owned a vineyard that required workers, went out multiple times during the day into the marketplace to hire more laborers. Laborers. He started at the beginning of the day and hired laborers, and then in the story, he went out at the third hour, he went out at the sixth hour, he went out at the ninth hour, 
and he went out at the 11th hour. And just so we're clear, in this parable, the landowner represents God. The landowner in this parable represents God. Just so we're clear on the whole thing, the landowner represents God, the foreman represents Jesus, the workers represent believers, and the denarius that was paid represents eternal life. And so, what we see in this parable, in this story Jesus is telling, is that we have a God who is continually seeking people. He is continuing continually calling people into His kingdom. We have a God who is continually calling people to salvation. The landowner was in the marketplace throughout the day, and that's the truth about God. He is continually reaching out into the marketplace of humanity, offering the gift of salvation, offering everyone an opportunity for a new and a better life than anything they could ever discover on their own. God is a seeking God. Somebody say amen to that. God is a seeking God. That's who He is. That's a fundamental truth about God that it is essential all of us as believers understand. There's a great story in John chapter 5 about Jesus healing a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. You probably remember this story. He did it at a place called the Sheep Gate Pool. We're more familiar with it by its Aramaic name. He did it at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. Now, if you're going with me later in the year to the Holy Land, we're going to visit this site. It's an incredible experience, and you're going to be blessed as a result of that. But you remember the story. There, it was a, there was a pool there where people believed that from time to time an angel would stir the waters, and the first one who had a disability or a handicap or a sickness who got into the water would be supernaturally healed. And Jesus encountered this one man who had been an invalid for 38 years, and He healed him. He healed him. The supernatural power of God was on display in that healing. This story is told in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. This is what verse 16 says, right after this supernatural healing. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. The Jews, those Jews that hated Jesus, had already rejected Jesus, religious Jews, Jewish leaders. They, remember, had developed this elaborate and complicated system of religious rules and regulations, and one of them was no healing on the Sabbath because that would be considered work, and that went all the way back to the Ten Commandments and the Fourth Commandment that says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so they believed that Jesus broke the Sabbath that day by healing this invalid man. And not only that, they believed that Jesus caused the invalid man to break the Sabbath that day because Jesus healed him by saying, get up, pick up your mat and walk, and that would have constituted work. And that's all they could see. Can you imagine in that setting having this supernatural thing happen in front of you, having been eyewitness to something that you had never seen before, may never ever see again, and immediately just thinking about the fact, I, you broke our rules. They didn't celebrate this man's healing. They just attacked Jesus because they hated Him. Well, in the very next verse, this is John chapter 5 and verse 17, this is how Jesus responds. He says, my Father is always at His work to this very day, and I am working too. Now, think about this with me again. He said, my Father is always, everyone say always, always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. Well, Jesus was basically saying, listen, the Sabbath was not put in place for the benefit of God. The Sabbath was put in place for the benefit of man because God's work is unceasing. God is always at work. Well, let me ask you this question, friends. What's the work of God? What is the work of God? Well, beyond just the fact that it's the work of His unceasing, un unending sustaining of the universe day in and day out, the work of God is seeking people who are lost. This is the heartbeat of God. 
just like that landowner in the parable of the workers in the vineyard went back to the marketplace and then went back and then went back and then went back with an offer of work. This is the work of God. He is always seeking people who are far from him. God is always seeking people who are lost. The heart of God beats for people who are lost. Do you remember what Jesus said right after he declared in Luke chapter 19 that a tax collector named Zacchaeus had received salvation? Do you remember what he said to the people that were there? He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. You can see it there on the screen, Mark, or Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Right after he declared salvation had come to Zacchaeus, he said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Well, Jesus was giving us his mission statement. He was telling us why he came into the world. But the Bible says that there are other reasons why Jesus came into the world. And one of the main reasons why Jesus came into the world, beyond seeking and saving people that were lost, is to reveal to us what God is like. Jesus reveals to us with his life what God is like. The Bible tells us that over and over again in a variety of different ways. Probably my favorite place where the Bible tells us that is in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, where verse 1 says this. The Hebrew writer says about Jesus, the Son. This is about Jesus. Notice that that's capitalized. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. This is what he says about Jesus. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Such a fascinating verse. The word radiance there. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. In the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word apagasma. And literally it means a shining light. And so when the Hebrew writer says about Jesus, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, he says that the sun came into the world to shine a light on the glory of God. The Son of God came into the world to shine a light on who God is. Because when we see Jesus, we see God. And so when Jesus says... For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost, and we know that the heart of God is for lost people. The heart of God beats for lost people. The Hebrew writer goes on to say about Jesus and the exact representation of his being. Those two words, exact representation, come from a single word in the original language of the New Testament. That's the Greek word character. And the word character describes an impression or an imprint made by a stamp in hot wax. And so when he says that Jesus is the character or the exact representation of God's being, he is saying that Jesus is the perfect personal imprint of God. Again, he's saying that when you see Jesus, you see God. And so I go back one more time to when Jesus stands up and says, this is what I'm all about. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. He's telling us, this is what God is all about. This is the work of God. And it's an unceasing, unending work. God's heart beats for people who are trapped in their sin, people who are a long way from Him, people who have no hope in and of themselves for eternity. And so when we go back to the parable of the workers in the vineyard and we see that the landowner, who remember again represents God in the story, comes at the beginning of the day and offers work to these day laborers, and then comes again at the third hour, and then comes again at the sixth hour, and then comes again at the ninth hour, and then comes again at the eleventh hour. We see the heart of God, and we celebrate the seeking heart of God. There's nobody that you know in your life. There's nobody that you'll ever lock eyes with in this world that God's heart doesn't seek after no one including if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the person that you look at in the mirror every day. God's heart beats for people who are lost. But here's the deal. This is not going to happen forever. God's 
heart beats for people who are lost, at least for now. Why do I say for now? Well, remember in the story of the that Jesus told the parable of the workers in the vineyard, there was a time when the day came to an end. The landowner came and he offered work in the morning, at the third hour, at the sixth hour, at the ninth hour, at the eleventh hour, but there was a time when the day came to an end. That's why Matthew chapter 20 and verse 8 back in our text says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. He'd call them all the way up to the eleventh hour, all the way up to five o'clock in the evening. If the workday began at six in the morning and ended at six in the evening, he called them all the way up to the last hour. But ultimately, the day came to an end. And listen to me, friends, that's the way it is going to be with God as well, with the seeking, calling heart of God as well. One day, the day will come to an end. Even though it's easy for us to think that that's not going to happen because right now we just get caught up in the dailiness of life and that it seems like that it's open-ended. That's why we read these words in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. This is Peter's response to people who ask basically a question, and the question was, what's this judgment we hear about? Or in other words, what's this end time that we hear about? Everything seems fine with us. What do we have to worry about with regard to the future? And Peter responded by saying, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, and that's a promise that one day the day will end. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And that just reminds us of what we've been talking about, that we have a seeking God. God has a seeking heart. He doesn't want to see anybody lost. He doesn't want to see anybody perish apart from Him. But one day, the day will come to an end. God's heart beats for lost people, but One day, God's patience will come to an end. So what's it going to take for you and me as Christians to feel that same sense of urgency with people that we know that are lost, people that we know that are a long way from God? I mean, in our Christian lives, we get so wrapped up in, in doing Christian things sometimes. We get so wrapped up in coming to church, and I, listen, nobody believes in the importance of coming to church more than I do and going to Bible studies and looking for new opportunities for us to be fed, for us to be edified, for us to grow. And we spend all of our time in church sometimes without feeling any level of conviction or passion about the people who are outside these walls who are a long way from God. What's it going to take? I can't read this passage in Matthew chapter 9. We talked about this. We're in the 20th chapter of Matthew now, so obviously we talked about this part of Matthew's gospel some time ago. But I can't, move, I can't read this part of Matthew chapter 9 without feeling moved. It says in Matthew 9, beginning in verse 36, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And then verse 36 says, When he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw the crowd... And just always picture Jesus in some kind of a vantage point where he's looking out over a group of people, going about the busyness of their day. When he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We talked about that word compassion before in the original language of the Greek. It's the word splonkno, and it means, a, it means something that you feel so deeply that you feel it physically. A, a simpler way to say it is when it says that when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. It means that when he saw the crowd, he felt sick at his stomach because of their lost condition. He felt sick at his stomach because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What's it gonna, what will it take 
for people like you and me to feel that same level of compassion for people? What will it take for us to have the same kind of a heart for lost people that God does? How do we develop the seeking heart of God for people around us who, if they were to die in the condition of being separate from God, would be separate from God for all eternity? I probably have told you this story before because I've been here long enough to where it's hard for me to keep track of things like this, but years and years ago in my little church in Texas, I had a church I planted in the suburb of Houston, Texas called Sugarland back in 1982. Years and years ago, after we had built a building and, and moved into that building, I got a phone call one week from a woman in the church that said, there is an ABC news crew that wants to come to church this Sunday and film portions of the service. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You, you, might, you gotta be pulling my leg, what, what, what do you mean? And as we talked a little further, and ultimately I, got, I literally got a phone call from an ABC news producer talking to me about it. I, I discovered that ABC News was doing a nationally syndicated primetime news special that was going to be called Growing Up in the Age of AIDS. This is in the 1980s. Can you remember the 1980s, some of you who are a little bit older, when we first learned about the HIV virus, when the first cases of AIDS came around and it was so frightening and people were dying in the thousands, especially people in the gay community were dying in the thousands and it was just such a frightening, frightening time. There was so much unknown about it. Well, here's the deal. There was a woman in my church who brought her sister to church sometime before that. And her sister, when she went to her high school prom, used some bad judgment with a young man that she didn't know very well and she didn't know the sexual history that he had. And as a result, she became HIV positive. And she found out when she went and got some routine blood work done at a lab as a part of an admission packet for college and she got a card back in the mail from the lab that said you're HIV positive. She got it in the mail, she looked at it, she didn't even understand what it meant. This is, remember, this is back in the 1980s. She handed it to her dad, she says, Dad, I'm late. Uh, I got this email, you, you need to look at this and figure this out. And she walked out the door and left her mom and dad with that horrific news. Well, her sister started bringing her to church and um, she felt a conviction in her life. And one evening I went over to the apartment that she was living in with one of the elders in our church. And I sat down on the couch. She was sitting down on the couch next to me and we made some small talk for a few minutes. And then I looked at her, her name was Amy. I looked at her and I said, Amy, are you at a place in your life where you know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? Now, friends, I, I, I've, said, I've asked that question to so many people over the years that I, don't, I couldn't even venture a guess as to how many there were. But I've never said it with a sense of urgency like I did that evening because nobody knew anything at the time about this HIV, about AIDS. She had big tears in her eyes. The good news is that she surrendered her life in complete faith and trust to Christ. She came to our church and she was baptized and she began to live a faithful life of following Jesus. And somehow this ABC News uh, special, the producers got knowledge of her and some of the work that she was doing to try to educate young people, college-age people about the mistakes and high school kids about the mistake that she made. And they wanted to 
make her life a segment of this show. And so they came. They literally came into our church service and they filmed parts of the service. I, it was so long ago that I've got it at home on a VHS tape. How many of you remember VHS tapes? I don't have a VCR to play it, but I have it on a VHS tape somewhere at home. What's, what's it going to take for us to feel that same sense of urgency with people that we know in our lives that are a long way from God. Hey, you know what? The good news is, is that Amy's still alive today. She's still alive today. She got married. She's got a productive life of faith today. Everyone is dying, though. Everyone around us is dying. And what will it take for us to have the same sense of urgency? What will it take for us to have the same heartbeat of God with regard to people who are a long way from him, people who are lost. I read this story and I want to celebrate the seeking heart of God who came back to the marketplace and back to the marketplace and back to the marketplace and back to the marketplace with the offer of something new. The second thing that I want to celebrate here real quickly, right down next to number two if you'd like to take notes, is let's celebrate the generous heart of God because when we read this parable, we see the generosity of God and the way he extends his grace, or maybe I should say in the way he extends the same grace to everyone who responded to the, his call, regardless of the timing, whether they responded first thing in the morning or at the 11th hour. Now, from a purely human standpoint, that's a little bit hard to accept because our natural response to a story like this, had it been something real that we had seen or had been a part of, our natural response would have been just like those workers who worked the whole day and were paid the same amount as those who only worked an hour. We would say, that's not fair. What's fair about giving someone the same amount of money for an hour's work as you would give to somebody for 12 hours' work? That was their response. And I don't, I don't think anybody here today or anybody who's listening to me online could in honesty say that you wouldn't feel the same way had you been a part of this. Your response wouldn't have been any different. That's not fair. But here's the truth that we all need to wrap our minds around. Write this down somewhere in your notes or maybe in the margin of your Bible next to this passage. God gives all of us more than we deserve. We need to remember that. We need to remember that every day of our lives. God gives all of us more than we deserve. So when it comes to God's grace, it's never a matter of someone deserving it more than someone else. None of us deserve it. We might be tempted to think something like this. If I gave the Lord 60 years of faithful service with my life, then I would deserve salvation. I would deserve the gift of eternal life. But you know what? That's not true. None of us deserve it. Doesn't matter who we are. You wouldn't deserve it. If you gave the Lord 60 years to faithful service of your life, for 60 years you dedicated every part of your life to serving God faithfully somewhere on a mission field or somewhere in a local church or wherever, you wouldn't deserve the gift of salvation and the gift of eternal life any more than the man who gave him 15 minutes of service at the end of his life. God gives all of us more than we deserve. So we don't want to fall into the trap of judging ourselves by the way God treats someone else because no one is deserving when it comes to God. See, here's the thing about God's grace. Write this down somewhere in your notes. God's grace never seems fair until you need some. 
And at the end of the day, you know, the only response that we should have to that is I'm so glad. God's grace never seems fair until you need some. And that's what he offers to all of us, not because we're deserving, not because we've somehow earned it, but because he's God. Remember what the landowner said? He said in verse 15 of the text, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Grace never seems fair until you need some. Well, let me bring this to a close with a passage that I love from Psalm 103, and Chrislin and Heidi can come and prepare to sing our decision song, our reflection song here at the end of the service. I love these words from Psalm 103. Look at them with me on the screen. I'm just going to begin reading in verse 8. The psalmist writes about God and says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Consider this part, friends. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. But not because we deserve it and not because we earn it, but because we respond to his call. You know, if you're here this morning or you're listening to me online this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never responded to the call of God, you never put your faith and trust in Christ, then you need to know that your life on its own, based solely on your own merit, what you bring to the table, is not enough for you to be right with God. It's not enough for you to know with assurance that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. That only happens when we receive God's grace, his unmerited favor, his free gift to us that comes as a result of putting our faith and our trust in Christ. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in the fact that you can look at your life and think, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most people. That's not how it's measured. The gift of eternal life is a result of God's grace alone. And the good news is that he offers it freely over and over and over again because he is a seeking God and his heart beats for people who are lost.